If you're new here, we've been um, celebrating the festivals of the Jewish calendar for the last seven months. And it's partly because we're focusing on joy this year and the ratio of festivals to fasts or rejoicing versus mourning in the Old Testament is somewhere between 75 and 85 to 1. The overwhelming theme of God's word is joy. And so uh, this last week was the last celebration in the seventh month, the month of completion. Uh, And so it's called booths where you're supposed to camp outside for a week. And so we did the wussy version where you camped outside for four days or three or two or one, depending on what you were up for. And so I've been camping outside in cold and rain for four days. And it's been so spiritually invigorating (laughs) and exhausting. Um, and so, uh, as we, as we talk about the Festival of Booths today and what God's will, what, what God's trying to show us in it, um, at the very end of Moses' life, when he had given the people the Torah, and they were about to go into the Promised Land, and he had led them through so many things, and God had done so much in their life, he got to this place where he was about to die, and I want to read for you what God said, because after all the stuff that he'd revealed, there was one more thing God gave his people through Moses, and it was a song. And it was a song of warning and judgment. And and Nicole's been really nice to turn that into a song for us. And so I want to read you um, the context so that when you listen to this song um, and sing it together, you you know where this is coming from, okay? So in in, uh, Deuteronomy 31, it says this. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. You must go with this people into the land the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them, and you must divide it among them as an inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. And then at the very end here, he says this to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, You're going to rest with your fathers, and these people— will soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods of the lands that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And on that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed, and many disasters and difficulties will come upon them. And on that day, they will ask, have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Now write down for yourself this song and teach it to the the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. And when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, a land I have promised on oath to their forefathers, and when they eat their fill and thrive, They will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song will testify against them, because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. And I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land I promised on oath. So Moses wrote down all the words of this song and taught it to Israel. Now, it may feel negative to you, that God would end his revelation to the people of Israel with a song predicting their absolute and abject failure and the punishments that he would wreak upon them for it. 
but there is such a thing as a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you say something about somebody and because they've heard it, they end up fulfilling it. Oftentimes it's negative, like you'll never amount to anything and then a kid never amounts to anything. But there's also such a thing as a self-defeating prophecy. A warning that is so intense and so focused that when people hear it, they avert from the destiny they would have fallen into. And that is always God's intention when he predicts our disaster. It's always his desire that we would hear it, and because we would hear it, we would avert from it. And if we don't avert from it, and we fall into it, and we fall into all its disasters, that in the midst of that disaster, we would know what to do, and how to turn back to him, and how to come out of it. So let's listen to this summary of Deuteronomy 32 together. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak.
Thanks, guys. If you want to, uh, later in the sermon, I'm going to pre- uh, go to John 7 in the early part of chapter 8. That's on page 16. It looks like 26 in my poor handwriting. Um, for that, if you want to go there, I'm going to read a bunch of verses out of there. I want to talk to you this morning about the Festival of Booths and how it's supposed to affect us out of the three stories that are told about it in the Old Testament. So there's a, a couple of places in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus in which we're told what to do. People are told what to do in the Festival of Booths. Essentially, live outside for eight days in booths that you've created and celebrate for seven days, um, both that we didn't have homes, and now we do in, in the Promised Land, that, um, and that it's also the celebration of ingathering or of all the harvest from the fall, right? What God has provided in the year. And then every seventh year, they would read the whole Torah, which is the, all the Bible at that time, the first five books of the Bible out loud so that everybody could hear it and nobody could be Jewish and not have read the Bible read to them, had the Bible read to them. But as you move through the Old Testament um, in, the, in the New Testament in the Bible, there's basically three moments where a very specific a story is told about celebrating the festival booths. And the first is in Deuteronomy 20, or 31 and 32, where it's, it says, God explicitly says that the way that the people are not to forget is that they're supposed to do it by celebrating the festival of booths. And um, so it says, Then Moses commanded them, this is 31 verse 10, At the end of seven years, in the year for canceling debts, during the festival of tabernacles, or booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble all the people, men, women, and children, the aliens living in your towns, so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Some people don't like the language to fear the Lord. One of the things I think is important to recognize as we, as we talk about this is we've talked for the whole year so far about this, this statement in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 10, where it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The, the world is a lot harder than we want to admit sometimes. It's a, it is, it's a tough place. It's relatively terrifying. Um, people betray each other all the time. And nations and states and governments and people and business— like, p- people do all kinds of crazy stuff all the time. And so um, it's very—so you need to be strong. And the easiest way for a human being to be strong, the, sort of the, the knee-jerk reflex way of being strong is through hatred, which is fueled by anger, right? And, and anger, all you need is your human animal instincts to be angry. And it's really quite strong, and then it produces hatred. And hatred is very strong. People say that— um, you know, that hatred is like, it's, it, you know, it's a useless emotion. It's not a useless emotion. It's an extraordinarily useful emotion. It makes you very strong. There's very little that makes you stronger than when you really hate something. And we should, we should stop pretending that isn't true. Right? Um, but, and, and the reason why that's important is because anybody can tap into that strength. You don't have to be a well-developed person to tap into the strength of hatred. Okay? But in order to tap into really the only thing humanly that's stronger than it, you do. Because the joy of the Lord is stronger than hatred. It is stronger. 
But the joy of the Lord is rooted as much as anything in hope. And hope is something that is not yet realized and not yet fully seen in its completed form. And therefore it exists conceptualized in the imagination. Okay? So in order to have the strength of joy, much of what that comes from is having a hope in something that you can see with your mind's eye. This is one of the reasons why Jesus said the most fundamental commandment you could ever receive as a human being through faith is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Because in in order to have the kind of hope that brings joy, that produces strength, that has to be conceptualized in the mind, embraced in the heart, find a home in the soul, and therefore be supported by your internal strength. Otherwise, your internal strength will move towards anger and then hatred to make you strong. Your your animal strengths have to be brought up into your more human mind. An an elevated being, that is your soul, must conceptualize in the mind and embrace in the heart the beauties of the glory of God. Therefore, that hope will produce joy, and that joy can produce strength. But that is the only strength that I know of that is stronger than hatred. And it does not come to an un—uncultivated human heart. It's hard to live by something you see in your mind's eye rather than something that jumps up from your emotional, hormonal secretions. And so when God says through Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength, that strength in joy comes through hope. And you've got to have sorted out how one hopes in God. Does that make sense? And in Deuteronomy 31, they're trying to sort this out at a high point, okay? They've come out of Egypt. They're about to go into the promised land. The promised land is flowing with milk and honey. God has promised that they'll have victory in overcoming the people who will try to stop them. And they're going to go, and they're going to be rich by worldly standards. And one of the things that God says about this is that the most dangerous moment spiritually for any human being at any time in history, at any moment in human development over the course of history, is when you're fattest. Like when you are wealthy and things are going well and you feel successful and relatively accomplished, that is the most dangerous moment for any human person. If you're not terrified about tomorrow, you are in incredible danger. Do you understand? He says in Deuteronomy 31, he says, listen, I know what's going to happen. They're going to go into that land and they're going to they're going to drink and they're going to eat and they're going to be full and they are going to thrive comma and then they're going to turn to other gods it's really scary and so one of the points that, that these kinds of festivals of remembering who we are that are meant to draw you back to realities that are easy to forget one of the fundamental truths that they're meant to teach us is that Anybody who doesn't strive to remember will forget. Okay, when it comes to your sense of security, your sense of identity or meaning, or your sense of vigilance, anybody who doesn't strive uh, to remember who they are, what their security is really in, 
what their identity really is, what their life really means, right, and what they have to watch out for, vigilance. Anybody who isn't actively seeking to remember those will forget them, okay? It is one of the most dangerous things you could think about yourself as a human being is that you are the one out of billions of human beings that that's not true of. Right? One of the places that you see this as much as anywhere where things are going well and they tank is in business and romance. So many businesses, like they're at their peak, they're rolling along, everything's growing great, and they just tank. Or other people, I've seen so many men and women who are like, I thought my relationship was going so well until it like really wasn't. And part of the reason for that is this. When you are doing well and you think you're doing well because you are doing it well, the thing that enters in right then is pride. And the one thing pride is not is vigilant about its own faults. And when you lose vigilance, you lose a clear focus on what is really your security, what is really your identity, and all of that starts to unravel. That's why in Proverbs 16 it says, pride comes before a fall. People crash because they take their eye off what's really going on, right? And one of the things that, that that's true about—sometimes it's true for men, it's probably true for women, just the same. I see it a lot in men, is one of the lies of pride is to tell you you're strong where you're weak and that you're weak where you're strong. So many people go through their life, and I can see this in them, just, just talking with them, that incredible strengths that they have, they believe are like weaknesses and they're worthless to everything, everybody. And then other places where they think that they're strong, they're actually terribly weak. And it would be a little bit like um, a knight in the Middle Ages going out to battle and saying that because I'm strong and because I know how to wield this sword, I don't need armor. And to go out and fight an enemy that's going to shoot 10,000 arrows at you. Right? The, uh, the Franks in 8—it was like 822 or something like that at Tours de Portier, um, they were called—they called them after the battles the porcupines. Because they were incredible fighters. They were just really—they were just really, really tough dudes, okay? And they didn't fight on horseback. They fought—they fought light cavalry on foot because you couldn't break their line. And so they had these shields, and they had this very thick leather armor. It wasn't as heavy as plate armor, but it was thick enough because the Muslim armies shot short bows off horseback, which didn't have quite as much power as an English longbow. But in order to be in this, in, in that thing, you had to be able to ride on horseback. Remember, this is without stirrups. So they're riding a horse without stirrups, and you had to be able to shoot three arrows in a second and hit your target at 70 yards. Okay. I don't, like, I don't care how good a deer hunter you are, there is no one that good now. It's, it is, that is unbelievably hard. But because they were fired out of these longbows, they just weren't traveling fast enough to go through thick metal armor. But they were going fast enough to stick into it. And so these Frankish knights, they would fight on, they would fight on the ground, sword and shield, and at the end of the battle, it was not uncommon for a Frankish soldier to have more than 400 arrows stuck into them into their shield, and into their—and they, lo- they looked like a porcupine. But they were unharmed because the arrow went in, but it didn't go through. And they fought, and they didn't have time to knock off every arrow, because the arrows were coming in in the thousands. And they had to stay focused, and they had to strike, and block, and strike, and block. And they—see, here's the thing they got straight. They got straight where they were strong and where they were not strong, okay? They were good with swords. They were still made out of soft pink flesh. 
okay? And they got that straight. They covered the soft pink flesh, and then they struck with their swords. So many Christians, so many human beings, because we, we're so naive in secularity about what human beings really are and what we're really like, that we think we're strong in this way, we think we're weak in this way, and some of the greatest gifts that God has given you that can bring the greatest amount of thriving to other people's lives and the greatest blessing you think are these weaknesses nobody has any use for, and you hide them under a basket, so to speak, and you do nothing with them, and then other areas where we're naturally weak as human beings, we think that we're strong, and we act like we're strong, and we— we're made out of basically spiritually soft pink flesh. And so our vigilance is completely screwed up. And you see, if you, if you get that straight, and you realize that anybody who doesn't strive to remember will forget, you've got a shot at being vigilant. And if you've got a shot at being vigilant in humility, you've got a shot at knowing who you are. And if you know who you are, you have a shot at knowing what your security is really in. And you've got a shot at being faithful. You've got a shot at being faithful. And I mean, what you're going to need is two things. One is, you see, that what the Bible says very clearly is that all of the rituals of the Old Testament are no longer binding on us. Right? Which is kind of cool, because you can eat pork and shrimp now. That's, that's like, it's fantastic, right? But, but here, here's, the other th here's the other thing, though, about that. We're, we didn't become a different species, right? We're the same race of men and women that we were when God commanded all those rituals. We're just as forgetful. You see, the idea was not that we would enter an era where because of Jesus, we no longer had to celebrate those rituals because they were fulfilled in Christ. And then we would just believe that we don't need anything to order our lives for the rest of our existence. We were set free in Christ to use wisdom to choose what rituals we would utilize to focus ourselves on vigilance and our identity and our security in Christ, and to use the ones that help us. Does that make sense? We're supposed to be wise and to choose, right? But the, the one di spiritual discipline that we all need to use, because it costs nothing, you can do it all day long, and it always attacks your greatest enemy of your vigilance, which is pride— is thankfulness. Thankfulness is the supreme spiritual discipline against pride and a loss of vigilance. Because when you are thankful that something else has been done for you that you don't deserve, you don't get upset about thinking you own everything and everything that good that's in your life you did, and therefore you should feel more entitled about your life. And so one of the disciplines of every Christian who is growing in humility is to be thankful for everything. Just to find thankfulness in everything. This is not, this is not just true for people who are wealthy. One of my best friends in college, Vladimir Joseph, had come straight to Sunni Oswego from Brooklyn Tabernacle. Brooklyn Tabernacle was a place in Brooklyn that was like mostly quite poor folks. That whole church was built on prayer, very loud and fun gospel music, and thankfulness. We would get together to pray. We'd only pray for like an hour or something together. And the first, like, 35 minutes was Vladimir thanking God for, like, the paint on the walls and that his cuticles weren't hurting. And, like, I mean, just, like, anything you could possibly be thankful for, he would pray through that every single time we would pray together. And then, like, for five minutes, we'd ask God for stuff. That's so profoundly rooting to the human soul. And it's true for every human being. So one of the questions you could ask those, you could say, okay, that makes sense. A little bit, Nick, maybe. Um, but what about, like, 
What about if you're not riding the top of the wave? What if you're in the trough? Like in 31 and 32, everything's going well. Like they're going to go be wealthy. They just came out of slavery. Things are going to be good. They know things are going to be good. They're going to live in a land full of milk and honey. And Moses is trying to prepare them to handle success. Like what if your life is like a mess? Like what if there's virtually nothing to find strength in the Lord in the present? Like what are we supposed to do? What if it feels much more like God has forsaken me than I have some kind of hope in him, right? That's a legitimate question, I think. And it gets back to something that looks like a really terrible contradiction in chapter 31 of Exodus. Because did you, did you, ca- did you catch the contradiction in it when I read it earlier? When, when he's speaking to, Mo- to uh, Joshua and to the people of Israel, he says, Listen, be strong and courageous. Why could, they, why could they be strong and courageous? Because I will never leave you or forsake you, right? And it says that four times. Maybe three times. Three or four times. More than two, right? And then he says, now he's talking to Moses. I know it's going to happen. We're going to that place, and they're going to turn to other gods, and they're going to forsake my covenant. And when they do that, I will grow angry with them, and I will forsake them. Right? Which is it? How does that work? It's on the same page. It's not like it's some, it's not like it's a mistake. I think God does—God never forsakes anybody, right? And then like on the same page, you're like, I think God is going to completely forsake them. No, there's this—there's this strange tension between those two things, right? And you can see this in the story of Israel. As you begin to read the rest of the Bible, you see exactly what this means. That when the people forsake God, he moves back and pulls away his blessing, and their life tanks and like wrecks. And then they turn back to God, and then he comes right to them. He hasn't finally forsaken them, Right? He will pull back and let them destroy themselves as long as they wish to forsake him. And the moment they turn to them, he's there. He comes right back in. And you see, he says the reason why he did this, right? The first reason he did this is so that um, they wouldn't fail in the first place, right? Like I've, I've said this to my kids all the time. I've said, listen, I want you to do this. And then they're, they're like, sure, dad, I'll do it. And then I'll say, listen, you're going to walk away and you're going to do this and that, and you're going to forget what I just told you, and I'm going to come home from work tomorrow, and it's not going to be done. Right? And then what do they say back to me? I know, Dad. I'll have it done. Don't worry. It's going to be fine, right? And then is it done? Almost, yeah. That was, that was my daughter. Sometimes. Sometimes it's done. Many times it is not done, right? And so, There's a second reason. So God knows that like hopefully the self-defeating prophecy will warn them enough that they will take heed and not forget and and do things right and trust him, right? But it also has a second purpose, which is if they do fail and they are forsaken and they fall into that pain and destruction and at some point they say, why am I doing this? What's going on? What explains or describes the shambles that my life is in, right? Right? He says this. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them, and on that day they will ask, have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us? Right? You see, whenever you have any kind of faith at all, and you believe 
that your faith in God is bound up with God's care for you, his rule of your life, and ultimately your destiny in relationship to something like a, like blessing is the language we use, right? And you think of yourself as like believing, and yet things are going like what the Bible calls curse, right? What people will say, they'll be like, God isn't with me. Like, isn't it clear from how this is going that God isn't with me, right? And there's, there's two things that that can mean, right? And that's, that's the equivocation where you have to be really careful how you think, right? It could mean God, God doesn't care about you. Like, there's eight billion people. The earth has been around for who knows how long. Like, it's a big world. It's a big universe. Who, who knows what the gods care about? And like, if you're living well and your life looks like it is losing, like you did not hit the cosmic lottery, like it's just because the gods don't care. You thought the gods care, the gods don't care. You better pull yourself up by your bootstraps as much as you can and get on with it, right? Because God is not with you. That's one possible meaning. The other possible meaning is you are lying to yourself that you are a good person. <laughs> That's the other possible meaning. The other possible meaning is that you think you're obeying the Lord. You think you're believing him. You think you've trusted him. You think you're walking with him. And you've, you've told yourself that and you aren't. You have forsaken him. You weren't vigilant. You lost your sense of identity with him. And you looked for your security in something else. And when you walked away from him, he drew back from you and he allowed your life to spiral down into the crushing defeat that it's in. And if you recognize that is why the Lord is not with you, you know exactly how the Lord could be with you because he will never leave you nor forsake you. The minute you turn around and you say, this is why he's not with me, I forgot everything. He said I would forget everything. He did everything so I would remember. He said, look, now be careful because like you're going to forget about this and especially when things are good. And I did exactly that. And I need to now turn around and turn back to him knowing that the God who forsook me has promised that he will never leave me or forsake me. And I'll turn back to him. And every time in the Old Testament that happened, every time the people turned back to him, even when people turned back to God and it wasn't even all that sincere, which is almost every time, he came rushing back in. Rushing back in. And enormously overcompensated with blessing for the tiny little bit of faith that they offered, which wasn't even that sincere. Because that's, that's what God is like, right? And so in the times of Nehemiah, after the exile, like the people had for 500 years forgotten, and he had reminded them, and he had reminded them, and he had forsaken them, and come back, and gone. And then they finally went into exile for 70 years, and everything got destroyed, and it was a real horror show, okay? And then they came back, and they're in the land of Israel, and they're trying to rebuild their lives. They have very little to speak of. They don't even know that a genocide is being cooked up for them in Babylon, that Esther, through God's providence, stops. They, the city is still kind of in shambles. They don't know what's going to happen in their future. They finally hear the Bible read to them for the first time in their generation. Apparently it hasn't happened for 70 years. It says they literally find the Bible, okay? Think about how bad your religion is going, right? When like you're getting together and like I go back in the back room and I find this thing called the Bible, right? That we've never read, you know? I'm like, hey, I found the Bible! And you're like, what? You know, I'm like, let's read some of it, right? And you've never heard of it, but you're like, I'm a Christian, right? And I start reading the Bible, and you're like, you start looking at your neighbor, you're like, we don't do any of this. Because that's what was happening. They didn't do any of it. They had no idea. And they're like, this is like their whole identity. And, and they're like, we don't do any of this. 
And God is, and then they get to the end where God's like, look, if you don't do this, I am going to listen. You need to remember this song about how I'm going to, and they're like, oh, this is bad. And, then, and it says like that they start weeping and they're like, we just, because we, they came 700 miles to rebuild a life. Now they realize God's just going to kill them, right? But it was the festival of booths, right? It was actually the festival of trumpets that day, but the festival of booths was coming in like 15 days. And Nehemiah says, he says, listen, listen, listen. You don't get to cry today because the Bible says you're supposed to be happy today. No matter how much you failed in the past, it says today is a day of celebration and you're not allowed to mourn and weep today. You can, you're only allowed to be happy today. So go and get like soda that you're not allowed to drink because it has too much sugar and like beer and like give some to people that can't afford it and like have this enormous party that's extravagant even though you probably should die and, and celebrate because God commanded you to celebrate. Let's start by obeying him in this. Let's just start with this. And, you see, and it says that 15 days later, they went up, up into the mountains and they celebrated the festival of booze like it had never been celebrated since the time of Joshua. Meaning, since Deuteronomy 31. Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years ago. You, have, you would have had to go back to the first generation of celebrators to have celebrated the festival booths like these ne'er-do-wells who didn't even know their own religion celebrated it in the time of Nehemiah. They got some kick in citron. Essential oils everywhere. <laughs> and they celebrated it and it said, it said that by the end of that celebration, their joy was very great. And here's what it led to. It led to them being willing to stand in Israeli sun all day for about six days hearing the Bible read out loud and explained to them. Their joy in hope that if they turned back to God, God would turn back to them, led them to real action, okay? So don't think that all, all that what there was to the revival was a party. There was a huge party, and that hope led to joy, that led to strength, that turned them to God, and they wanted to know what God had to say. And they listened to his word. And they listened to it explained. And they changed their lives in faith. Right? So if your life isn't at the top, if your life is at the trough, hope is all the more important. Hope is what substantiates your joy. And it is the only thing that can make you strong. Right? So let me tell you about the third one. And um, the third major focus in, of the Bible on the festival booths is actually in the New Testament. It's in the Gospel of John. John chapter 7. And essentially what this passage tries to show us is that everything to be joyful about in every festival of the Old Testament, from Passover all the way through till the festival of booths, Everything in all of those festivals and everything in the entire Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah King himself. In Christ himself it's fulfilled. Which means you can possess its joy every day. The whole of it is yours every day if and when you are in union with Christ. Let's just focus on, on booths for a second here, and you'll understand the dynamic. Now, one of the difficulties with people understanding John 7 and 8 is because there is a story in John 7 in most Bibles that is one, one of your favorite Bible stories, 
that probably was not in the original Bible. Almost certainly wasn't in the original Bible. And you'll see why when we get done today that it's, that it's not, it wasn't. Now, it's a story of, remember the woman caught in adultery? You know that story? Raise your hand if you know that story. The woman caught in adultery. She's caught in adultery, and they're like, we should stone her. And Jesus is like, drawn in the stand. They're like, don't you think we should stone her? And Jesus is like, hey, how about the person who has committed, hasn't committed any sin? Or some people think he actually means committed this sin. Let that person be the first person to throw a stone at her. And then they all kind of drop their stones and walk away. And she's like, she's like, he's like, don't, where have your, where are your people gone? She's like, nobody's condemned me. He's like, well, then I don't condemn you either. Go in peace. You know that story? Not in the Bible. Okay. I'm sorry. Because this is a really good story. Now listen, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right? There's thousands of stories about Jesus doing amazing things that aren't in the Bible. John's gospel itself says, if I wrote down everything Jesus did, the whole earth would be full of books of all the stuff Jesus did, right? It just turns out that this little section doesn't show up in biblical manuscripts until like the middle of the fourth century, okay? Now, here's the reason why it makes me mad, okay? Because it actually breaks up this very important argument Jesus is making through two chapters. And it like comes in here and it blows apart the flow of the whole thing, okay? Does that make sense? All right. Now, what's going on here? Okay, so in chapter 7, it says that the people that Jesus was leading were going up for the feast. And his own brothers and sisters said, hey, aren't you going up for the feast? Which is a reasonable argument because every Jewish male is required to go to Jerusalem for the feast. And Jesus says, no. And then he goes secretly. Why? Because he doesn't want to go publicly, but the law actually commands he has to go. So he says he's not going so he doesn't get followed. He's like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, be, I'll be along, right? And then he goes secretly, and he doesn't actually show himself till the last of the eight days, okay? He has this long discussion, but there's two very memorable parts about it, okay? And they're tied into two celebrations that the Jewish people did during the Festival of Booths that aren't commanded in the Bible, okay? So as time went on, the Jewish people added more parts, because you're supposed to celebrate for a week, but it doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do. Right? So we went out camping for the last four days, and we're supposed to be celebrating. The Bible says, you know, if you're going to do this, you should celebrate. But like, it doesn't really literally tell you exactly what you're supposed to do to celebrate. You know what I mean? And that's, that's difficult, because if, if you, like, I don't know if you've ever been to like a fraternity or drinking party or something like that. Surely none of you have ever gone to one. I went scientifically one time just to observe. And they're about the most boring affairs you can possibly imagine, okay? Like, they turn up music really loud so nobody can talk to anybody, and then everybody intoxicates themselves so they'll imagine it was a good time. But if you go to one of those things sober, it's like the dumbest thing you've ever seen. It's so clearly people are just trying to hook up with each other, and people they don't know, and the frat people are just trying to get as many females moving through the building as possible, and that's all that's happening, okay? There's no fun. There's nothing interesting. There's no—nothing really planned. It's just—it's ridiculously stupid. And the only way it can seem interesting is by intoxicating yourself, okay? Which is probably not what we're supposed to do to make booths fun, right? So in order to actually have fun together without just utilizing altered state of consciousnesses, you have to, like, plan something, right? That's why people watch football games together, because it orchestrates what happens on the TV screen, orchestrates what you're supposed to do to, to, to worship together. Right? So like, when the, when the officials go, you're supposed to go, yay, uh, if it was your team. Right? And it's all orchestrated by the television and what goes on in the television. 
So the liturgy is laid down by the TV, and then you participate in the kneeling and the cheering and the hugging based on, you know, the passing of the peace and all that, based on the liturgy dictated by the event. And it's semi-random. It's not the same every time, right? So like, it's like the lectionary readings change depending on which team is playing, right? And so it's one of the reasons why we like celebrating with sporting events is because there's something active to do that's dictated by the game, right? Because we don't have any other celebrations. Like, think of any other celebration where you go, you're not drunk or high, you celebrate in a coordinated way, and you know what you're doing. Right? So, like, a lot of cultures, for example, like at wedding celebrations, there were like eight songs that they would play, and there was a dance that you would do, and you'd switch partners during the dance, or you had all these English line dances and stuff like that that they would do, or I guess country music ones too. And then, like, we were just watching Sound of Music with my kids, which is like three and a half hours long. Good heavens! And, but there's this one point where they talk about there was this Austrian folk dance that everybody knew, right? Because people used to dance, right? Because people just played the fiddle, and like, there were these songs everybody knew, and the shared culture created these contexts in which you would celebrate together, and you didn't have to be drunk. It's like, oh, we're gonna do this dance. Like, so we're in the pavilion the other night, and there was this shared culture that everybody had that they could do together. Everybody had memorized the children's album. And so there were these like 11 songs we all knew. And once we started singing, people were dancing and shouting and clapping and bouncing up and down and having this incredibly strange, great time singing kids' songs. There were almost no kids there. <laughs> but people were excited to know what to do together. Nobody's any idea how to celebrate anything, right? Okay, that was a very long introduction to <laughs> the Jewish people had to come up with traditions. And so like, if you, like, this is important for like your family. If you want Christmas to matter, you need to construct some traditions that you do, that you do every time, that everybody, like, and here's a good tradition. When your kids think it's stupid, but get angry at you if you don't do it. That's perfect. <laughs> right? That's what you want. And you want those with, like, every celebration. Your anniversary, birthdays, Christmas if you celebrate it, and so on. Like, just like, you need to change. Like, Christmas, we have the worst possible traditions. We watch TV, and we open presents for us. Like, this the—how could—I I don't know how I could come up with a worse set of traditions to focus us on what we should actually celebrate for Christmas. We should open presents like on New Year's or something. Like, do something about Jesus. On, you know what I mean? Anyway, so the Jewish people had these two big festivals that they would do during the Festival of Booths. One is every day they, were, they made sacrifices in the temple. And so to involve everybody, because only the priests could make the sacrifices— they would, the priests would come down from the temple, through the court of the women, through the outer precincts, down the side to this place called the Pool of Siloam, which was some of the best water that you could get, and it was used for anything happening in the temple. And they had two—I think they were golden pitchers. One of them, they filled with new wine, because it's the, it's the festival in gathering. Guess what gets picked last in Israel? Grapes, right? And so by booths, the very first of the new wine was coming off, which was new. It wasn't well-seasoned but it would do the job, okay? And so they would fill the pitcher with this new wine, and they'd fill the other pitcher with water from the Pool of Siloam, the clearest, best water you could get in Jerusalem. And then all of the people who'd come to celebrate had sticks, this bundle of sticks from the stuff they used to build their booth. 
So there was like a citron stick, and there was like a willow stick, and a palm blanch, and they'd tie them together, and they'd shake them like this, and the priest would play the flutes, and they would sing Psalm 118, and they would take the two pictures, they'd march all the way up, in, up past the temple, through the courts of the Gentiles, into the court of the women, all the way up to the altar. They'd pour these both into the bowls, and they'd pour them out as an offering before God. The wine pointing back to the great harvest that they had just had, the water pointing forward to the next month, which was the month of rain, which would determine whether or not they'd have crops the next year. Right? <clears throat> On the last day of the feast, after they had done that seven times, it says that Jesus was standing outside of the courts or in the court area. This is what he said. This is chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. See, you see the point here? For seven days, they've been doing that ritual. You get the water, you bring it up. You get the water, you bring it up. Water is everything. It's, a, it's dry land without the rains. Nothing happens. Water is everything. It is the, the source and foundation of our life. And he stands up where this has been happening for seven days. He says, listen, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he says, as the scripture says, in Isaiah 55 it says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone is hungry, let him come and eat food without cost. Um, come and listen to me and your soul will delight in the richest food that there is. And then two verses later, he says what that means literally spiritually. He says, says let the wicked man forsake his way and let him turn to the Lord for the Lord will freely pardon him. So drinking in this water, the fullness of God, right? Isaiah 55 says, is based on this idea that you come to God to eat and drink, meaning that in all your wickedness, all the stuff you know is terrible about you, you forsake it, right? The New Testament calls that repentance, turning away from it. Let the wicked man forsake his way and turn to the Lord. Why? For he will freely pardon or forgive and when he's forgiven, that means you're in the right relationship with him, and he'll give you everything that you need. He'll give you water to drink. He'll give you, well, in many passages, wine to drink, and the richest possible food, right? Richest possible food means wine and rich foods and, like, really great stuff. Festival and gathering kind of stuff, right? And Jesus says that that is not rooted in the festival of water. He says now in his coming, that is rooted in himself. He says, you have to come to me, to drink. Do you understand? The other and arguably cooler celebration is that in the court of the women, which was one of the largest areas where everybody was allowed to go in if you were Jewish, there was this like big square area. The treasury was on this side of it, and then there was this gate where you would go into the holy places, and there were these big steps that went up, and, um, and men and women could all be in this area. And what they did is they had these, these four huge um, like candelabras. And they were 50 cubits high. A cubit is 18 to 22 inches. So that's like 75 feet. So imagine at least as tall as the top of the peak of this roof. Okay, so just imagine this. You're in a place that's not a lot bigger than this, maybe a little bit deeper than this room. Okay, it's flat, stone floor, stone all the way around, walls on all sides. Okay, and they put up four candelabras that are that tall along the front wall. Each one has four branches that go out, and they have bowls that hold about two gallons of olive oil. In those bowls of olive oil, they've taken the, the clothes of the priests, 
that are no longer new enough to be used for sacred work, and they've torn the linen into strips and put them in those bowls, and they set the whole thing on fire. Sixteen two-gallon torches, right, in this small area. And then the priests would play music all night, and everybody was allowed—had to dance all night, and you were allowed to dance with torches in your hands. Okay? And because of the grace of God, nobody was ever burned. I'm just kidding. So, so like, literally— Hundreds of men and women would come up into the court of the women, music all night, these huge torches, like lighting a flame the sky, torches in their hands, dancing before the Lord, right? It says in the Mishnah that you could see the glow from the temple in the entire city of Jerusalem, right? Now, if you take out this portion that's not supposed to be there, okay? And you pick up the very next verse, which assumes Jesus is still talking in the festival of booths at the very last day. It says this, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See the point? Like all this celebration, all the celebration of like God being the light of his people, God being the light of the world, God lighting the whole nation of Israel, God giving them the light of the way because this marked the entrance into the temple, right? The worship of God and the light of God for all the nations, right? And Jesus stands there. It says he's standing next to the treasury in the next verses, meaning he's standing in the temple of the women. The treasury is right there. The candelabras have not been taken down yet. And he says, in this spot, it explicitly says he's in that space. And he says, I am the light of the world. You see, all the light of the feast, all the light of God's revelation, all the light that God had spoken, all the light uh, that kept all mankind from walking in darkness, he says, he says, that's all in him. Jesus is the light of the world. Right? Now, okay, those are—that's cute, right? He, you know, Jesus uses the festival actions of his time, but, but is that really—is that, is that all he's getting at, right? And it's not. That is a very colorful thing to look at in his discourses here, but he's actually doing a lot more because this is one of his big fights with the religious leaders of his time in John's gospel. And one of his frustrations with them is the exact same frustration Moses was showing with the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy, which was they were claiming to be honest, but they weren't really being honest with themselves. You will find, like this is especially true for you, for you young people, because you'll enter in your development a period of time where you're really focused on the truth. What's true? Like, what is the truth? And you'll read the Bible like the Bible is mainly written to reveal the truth. And it's not. Okay? Now I want you to listen very carefully to what I mean by that. It, it is always telling the truth. But the Bible does not treat you like you are a floating reason. We are psychologically and mentally very complex creatures that are always lying to ourselves and playing games. And the Bible, therefore, is much deeper than just, here's the truth. The truth is present, but it is always couched in the fact that it's being communicated to creatures that are always lying to ourselves and playing games. So it's always encoded within our psychological needs, which is why you'll get frustrated at Jesus talking in riddles. He's talking in riddles because we're playing games. And that's how you talk to people who are playing games. Do you understand? 
And so in this, he says, he starts this discourse. He says, listen, stop, this is verse 24 and 7, stop judging by mere appearances and make right judgments. Right? And, they, and so people are like, okay, wait, if he speaks with this kind of authority, maybe he's the Christ. And the Jewish leaders say, no, he's not the Christ because we know the Bible says that when the Messiah comes, the true anointed one, no one will know where he's from. He'll come to us almost out of nowhere. And because of that, this guy can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. We know he was, he's from Nazareth. We know he's from the region of Galilee. He's not native to Jerusalem. There's no way he's the Messiah, right? And they double down on this because Jesus confronts them again about it. And actually, there's this point where the, the religious leaders are arguing, and this guy named Nicodemus is like, hey, shouldn't we like talk to him or like read the Bible or something closer and like see if maybe we've been wrong in our interpretations? And, they're, and this is what they say to him. Are you from Galilee too? Look into it yourself. And you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee, right? And so because of that, Jesus is out. Okay, that's a very interesting argument. Because perhaps the most messianic passage in the entire Bible of the King Messiah coming is in Isaiah chapter 9. Okay, that's, this is the chapter. Isaiah chapter 9 is the chapter that we like read at Christmas. It's wonderful counselor, mighty God. Like that one, that's crazy messianic. Okay, let me— let me read for you the first couple of verses. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom, that is, or darkness, for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. How will he honor the Galilee of the Gentiles? The people—and I want you to listen to this in relationship to the two things that we just talked about. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest time. Okay, like, you can't make this stuff up. This was 700 years before Jesus was ever born. Right? And it literally says in the most messianic passage in the entire Bible that the land of Naphtali, which is Galilee, and then explicitly says Galilee of the Gentiles will be honored by God. Right? How? With the Messiah that the people who are in darkness will see a great light and people will rejoice when he comes just like they rejoice during the harvest. How do they rejoice at the harvest? You would know if you went to the harvest festival, which is the festival of booths. But do you see Jesus' point? Like, in their minds, these are extraordinary— Like, listen, don't think of the Jewish leaders in the Bible as like, like evil, wicked people that just want to— Like, they thought of themselves as extraordinarily devout people. And they were. They were way more devout than you, right? But in their minds, they had just—they, like, clicked in these associations, and, like, they had just gotten in their head that, like, Prophet can't come out of Galilee. That's all there is to it. Doesn't matter if he's like raising the dead and causing blind people to see and people who can't hear to hear and expositing the scripture beautifully and pre yeah, and preaching good news to the poor and doing amazing messianic things. Listen, look, if we know, if he's from Nazareth, he's just out. And so Jesus comes to people and says, listen, you 
have got to stop reasoning this way. The truth is right in front of you, and you can't see it. And you have to let yourself see what's right there. And if you look more closely to the the larger argument Jesus is making, he says this. Well, I gotta go back to that part. He says, verse 33, I'm with you only for a short time, and then I will go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I'm going, you can't come. Okay, now listen. That where I'm going, you can't come is incredibly important because you know what it says right after that? It says, the Jews said to one another, where does he, this man tend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where the people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does this mean when he says, you will look for me, but you'll not find me, and where I am, you cannot fa- come? Okay, listen. John did not write that on a bunch of plant papyri line by line with a little ink pen so that he could capture the strange quotation of Jewish leaders, okay? The entire purpose of writing those verses is to repeat the significance of the thing Jesus had just said. That the fundamental conundrum of this passage, the entire interpretive fulcrum of all of the meaning of Jesus, comes down to what Jesus does mean when he says, I am going somewhere and you can't come. Right? And then he tries to explain it when he says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Because I'm the source of the water of life. I can fill you with life. If anybody's lost in darkness and doesn't know which way to go and doesn't know how to get to where they need to go, he says, I am the light of the world. Right? And he ends this way. It says in verse 21, and once more Jesus said to them. So after all this discord, Jesus has taken one more shot, okay? Verse 21, once more Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jewish leaders ask, will he kill himself? Is that what he, why he's saying? Where I go, you can't come? But he continued, You are from below, and I'm from above. You are of this world, and I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. Literally in Greek it is, if you do not believe that I am. Indeed, you will die in your sins. So you see the idea? He's saying, listen. He's like, I'm going somewhere. He refers to it as above. And he says, you can't come there— if you, if you continue to look for me after I've been here. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, you know there's a Savior that's supposed to come. You know that you have to put your trust in him. You know all that. And so you're telling yourself, Jesus is saying, he's saying you're telling yourself it's not him. You're telling yourself it's not me. And he, he goes, he says, this is the problem because when I leave, I'm not coming back while you're still alive. And you're going to continue to look for me. And as you continue to look for me, you won't put your faith in me because you'll be like, well, when's he coming? I don't know when he's coming. He's like, I'll have already come. And so what will happen is you'll die in your sins. You won't turn to me for the water of life. You won't look to me for the, as the light of the world. You won't put your faith in me. And so you won't be redeemed, saved, delivered, forgiven, pardoned. And so the result will be you will die in your stubbornness. You will die having forsaken God. And if you, that is the only state you can die in in which God will ultimately forsake you. It's the only state you can possibly be in. Because the moment you unforsake God, he unforsakes you. Go back to Deuteronomy and the entire testimony of the entire Bible. The minute you unforsake God, he unforsakes you and comes straight to you. The only way to die in your sins, to die separated from the one 
who has come to give us light and life, is to say you're still looking for the way when the way is here. You see? And he says, so what you have to do is you have to believe. And he says explicitly, he says, you have to believe that I am. I am is the specific statement from Exodus where God was introducing himself as God to Moses. You have to believe that the I am, the one who wrote Deuteronomy 31 and 32, the one who, who said all these things and walked with these people for thousands of years, you have to believe that Jesus is in himself that being. He is God. And when you realize that, when you put your trust in him, when you believe that he is that one, then you'll know he's the light. You'll know he's the water of life. You'll know he fulfills everything we look to in the harvest. You'll know that he is the dignity of Zebulun and Naphtali. He is Galilee dignified. He is the one who brings rejoicing like at the time of harvest. He is the one who conquers his enemies like the days of Midian's defeat, it says later in chapter 9, just like it says in the song that Nicole played, that he will win his victory and his word is final. He's talking about what we call heaven. How do you find your security when you know your body's going to die and you don't know what's going to happen to you? Your consciousness or whatever you call you. How do you ultimately, you who are going to die, how do you find ultimate security? And if that's all you are and you don't know what's going to happen to you, how do you find your identity? Is your identity just you are a biological creature scrapping to stay alive? Is that it? Or maybe that's enough for you, but it shouldn't because it isn't what you are. You can say that it's great biological humility to say that you're not just but a biological creature scrapping to stay alive and to pass on your genes. That's actually not in reality humble if you're meant to be a prince. That's a cop-out. And so, if you want to have, and you know you need, the hope that clarifies the joy, that creates the strength, that makes you capable to love. That hope has to be rooted in something beyond your immediate experience. It has to be something that you can see in a redeemed mind's eye, something that you don't feel entirely in your life yet, something that is, that is less empirically testable but more concretely true than what anger can produce with hatred. Something that is so profoundly beautiful that it can make you strong. And that, but that only works if you actually believe on the basis of the word and covenant of God that it's true. That there is a bodily home for you beyond this one. If you're interested in reading about that, 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, there's a bodily home. This tabernacle of your body will die. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that there is a greater, a greater building from God that is your eternal body. But that doesn't matter if that eternal body would exist in a horrific, terrible, eternal kingdom. But Jesus also has a kingdom that is free of oppression in the presence of peace and joy that that permanent body will live in if you belong to him. And if you know that, then you will know how to be vigilant. You will know what your identity is no matter what comes. And you will find security in some of the most normally insecure sorts of situations you will know absolutely that you are going to be okay. And you won't be afraid or discouraged, and you'll be able to be strong and courageous. And the self-defeating prophecy of God will protect you and save you and help you 
and you'll be able to walk in the joy and strength that hope provides. And you're going to need it because you're a steward. You're here to do something. Let's pray. God, as we, um, as we reflect on this, we pray, Lord, that you would you'd help us to take to heart. We pray that you would, you'd help us to remember what it must mean to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How little we do it, how important it must be. We pray that we would be able to take the lessons from these thousands of years that you have laid out so clearly with eyes to see them. We pray that you'd help us to get rid of our simplistic interpretations like, hey, the Messiah can't come from Galilee. They're just obviously wrong if we cared to know. And fill us with a greater and stronger truth that is woven through all these things that find its, finds its absolute fulfillment in Jesus and in his life and death and resurrection for us. In Jesus' name. Will you please stand and let's sing together from Deuteronomy 32. Listen, new heavens, and I will speak. Hear you words, the words of my mouth. And now my teaching.
active. 